All right, we're recording. Okay, so um, this is the Advent season, uh, which is a big deal for us at Otter Creek, which is awesome. Uh, I was just talking to some friends who haven't been going here and just switched back uh, to Otter Creek, and they're like super excited the, the way Otter Creek celebrates and recognizes the Advent season. And um, so anyway, it's a blessing, I think, that we do this so intentionally and for an extended period of time. Uh, I think it's really special. Uh, So the Advent season is about the beginning of Jesus' life and his return. Today we're going to start at the end of his life. So we're going to be talking about the vine dresser and some of the stories during the last week of Jesus' life. So uh, bookends for your Bible study this Sunday. Um, Let's stand and do the Shema as we have every class. Of course, this is the foundation of our life today and tomorrow, and we say this to rededicate our hearts to the Lord uh, in this moment, in this class period, and remain standing and we'll say a scripture together afterwards. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Amen. Let's read this together. Listen to me, you who follow after righteousness and who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the hole of the pit from which you were dug. Look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who bore you, for I called him alone and blessed him and increased him. Amen. You may be seated. I think it's easy to... Uh, read the Bible and feel a disconnect between the people in the Bible and the stories in the Bible because it was so many years ago in a different part of the world with a very different culture. And uh, some of the people in the Bible, Abraham, for instance, seem like heroes. And we describe the characters in the Bible to children kind of as heroes. And then along the way, It's almost like we need to make a shift from these heroes going back to humans so that we can relate to them, right? And some of these stories are weird and they don't make sense. Uh, There's a lot of complexity. What I would say is that the Bible uh, is full of stories that the weirdness, the complexity, the things that don't make sense, the things that surprise us in the Bible make the scriptures very similar to our own lives, where our own lives are full of complexity and uh, cloudiness, maybe, in how we make sense of things. These people are humans. And what this verse is saying is that we are cut from the same stone. We are taken out of the same quarry as Abraham and Sarah and Ruth and David and John the Baptist and Elijah and Jesus himself which we will look at. We are taken from the same quarry as all the people that we read about in the scriptures. Now, um, how many, is anybody in here going with the Otter Creek trip to Israel in a few months? You got one, or have you been before? Has anybody been before? It's, it's okay if you haven't, but it's, it's an amazing place. And one of the things that is so amazing about it is Herod. Herod 
left a permanent impression on the land of Israel. Massive structures he built all over. Um, Herod, of course, was the king of the Jews, an amazing builder and a horrible ruler. A horrible person, uh, would killed lots of family members, horrible to the Jews, um, a really bad person, but an incredible builder. And he's built amazing places all over the land of Israel. One of the big ones was the, the temple in Jerusalem. And most of these structures were built out of stone, not wood. And I think something we discussed earlier in this class was that Jesus grew up, uh, his trade was, in our Bibles it says carpenter. The Greek word for carpenter, uh, or where we get carpenter from, is tekton. Tekton really means more of a builder or a master builder, a craftsman of stone. Okay, so it's more likely that Jesus worked with stone than with wood. It's more likely that Jesus worked in the quarries than with wood. Now, to, I think this is an illustration of just how big this temple was that Herod built. Jesus says, destroy this temple, meaning referring to himself, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? The temple was massive that Herod built, probably 15 stories tall. The limestone blocks, the foundation of the temple, weighed some of those foundation blocks weighed 500 tons. It was incredibly, incredibly huge. Herod built a number of other big things in, well, in the city of Jerusalem alone. I mean, he built a great water infrastructure system in the town. He paved the streets. Uh, he built a Greek theater as well, which the Jews, devoted Jews, would have hated that because the entertainment theater culture of the time was incredibly pagan. Now, a sidebar here, do you know the biblical word or the word at the time uh, for actor? Hypocrite. Hypocrite. Now, it's fascinating that entertainment and acting and performing at that time was such a pagan practice. But think about now and the turmoil in the entertainment and media industry and what we're finding about the actors in our own society. Jesus reserved the word actor or hypocrite as a pretty strong condemnation for those who weren't in line with God's will. So it's interesting to me at least to connect those dots that maybe we shouldn't be so surprised that the entertainment culture that we're in today is so pagan and corrupt, right? It's a fascinating thing and it's sad really that our world, so many people are so taken by entertainers and actors. Some other things Herod built, he built uh, Caesarea, which was on the coast, an amazing uh, big construction project, ports, and uh, also another theater uh, for the hypocrites to be in. Uh, he built Masada, a huge fortress on the Dead Sea, 
up on a mountain and many more things. Herod was the king of the Jews. He was a master builder and a horrible person and a horrible ruler. Now, my question. Can I ask one? Yeah. Well, he was a Roman, wasn't he? Herod. That's right. He was a Jew. Right. He was partly Jewish, but the Roman ruler over the Israel, okay. over Israel okay. at the time. Yeah. So working under. Is a puppet of. Rome. Yes. Yeah, and working under Caesar to try and keep the peace in that area. But he wasn't a religious. Right. You remember John the Baptist criticizes him. Yes, that's right. Yeah, so, um, yeah, definitely not a good person by any means. Would have been seen as a traitor. Yes. To work with and for the Romans. Right. So my question uh, from this is all these massive building projects, fame all over the land, but there are no followers of Herod today, right? No followers of Herod today, even though he left a permanent impression on the land of Israel that you can still see right now. What's fascinating is while Herod was building these massive projects, there was another master builder, craftsman of stone, building underneath the surface of his leadership, the true king of the Jews, Jesus of Nazareth. And it takes a ton of work to build and shape stones. You have to chip away the things that don't fit. You have to sometimes take away large blocks of stone to make the stones fit what you want. And Jesus is doing that still today in this room and in this building and all over the world. Jesus is still mining in this quarry, working in this quarry that we are all pulled from, shaping us as stones to be what he wants us to be. It's a painful process. It's a painful process for us as we, as Jesus shapes us day by day to be what he wants us to be. Herod built buildings. Jesus builds people still today. Another quick bit of irony, too, is if you look in the first few verses of Luke chapter 8, one of the main people who was funding the ministry of Jesus was Herod. So, again, God works in all sorts of uh, mysterious and ironically funny ways. Okay, I want to think, uh, I want to set up at least the parable we're going to look at today. Um, he tells this in the last week uh, of his life. So Jesus goes to Jerusalem um, to, to die, but does many other great things along the way. Now, most of Jesus' life was in conflict with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were leaders among the people who were devoted to God's word and tried to help reignite passion and energy to follow God's word among the people. Now, if you remember some of our discussions, most of the Pharisees were really good people. Okay, the majority of Pharisees were awesome people. The minority, a small group of them, were actors. A small group of them were hypocrites. And Jesus criticizes them as such. And the, the devoted Pharisees also criticized them as such. And the criticism Jesus 
has for those hypocrites are very similar that the Pharisees had for the hypocrites among them. Okay, so most of the Pharisees, great people. Flipping over to the Sadducees, who Jesus interacts with the Sadducees a lot in the last week of his life. Most of the Sadducees were pretty awful people. The Sadducees, who were the priesthood, the Sadducees had partnered with Herod, had partnered with Rome, and were using the temple to preserve their power and their wealth over uh, society, over the, Jewish, over the Jewish people. They were extremely wealthy. They owned land, uh, mostly in Jericho, um, which if you remember in Leviticus, it talks about how the priests were not supposed to own land. So the Sadducees, the priesthood, extremely corrupt. Jesus comes in and goes directly at the Sadducees, and he threatens them not only theologically, but the greater threat that Jesus posed to the Sadducees was their power and wealth over the Jewish people. And Jesus strongly condemns them for using their, uh, their place of leadership in selfish ways for their own gain. They, I don't think they were elected. They were the priesthood. So if you think about the book of Leviticus, uh-huh, right. Yeah, so they, they were the priesthood. And Jesus condemns them as saying, you're not doing your job. And he does this in, a, in an array of places all throughout uh, the last week of his life through actions and stories. And um, we're going to look at just a couple of those today. All right, we're going to read from Luke chapter 20, uh, the parable of the tenants. Luke chapter 20, parable of the wicked vine dressers. Um, this, the setting is that Jesus is in the temple here, um, the temple in Jerusalem. And Jesus told this parable, a certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to vine dressers, and went into a far country for a long time. Now at vintage time, or the season where they gather up the fruit off the vines, at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant. And they beat him also, treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And again he sent a third, and they wounded him also and cast him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner do to them? He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, certainly not. Then Jesus, then he looked at them and said, what then is this that is written? 
The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. And the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the people, for they knew he had spoken this parable against them. Okay, so this is something we've harped on in the class. Whenever a rabbi tells a parable, he is referring to something in the scriptures, which at the time would have been the Old Testament. Parables are told to explain the scripture. So the first thought that we should be thinking as we read parables in the Gospels is, where is Jesus getting this from? What's the source? What is he trying to help us refer back to? Now, it would have been immediately. So think about how the parable starts. A certain man planted a vineyard. Boom. That's when, that's when the hearers go, oh, he's referring to Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5 is about God's vineyard not producing any good fruit, and therefore God will come and destroy that vineyard for not producing any good fruit. It says, He looked for justice but found oppression. He looked for righteousness but only a cry for help. So Israel is God's vineyard, and Israel is not producing any good fruit in Isaiah uh, chapter 5. Now, vineyards in Israel at the time, to think about the context, uh, vineyards were, or family farms, had three plants, typically. Uh, and the vineyards, of course, represented Israel. Now, olives, olive trees represented or, the ordinary people. Okay? Grapevines also represented ordinary people in Israel. And then most of them had a single fig tree, and the fig tree represented the leadership of Israel. Now, fig trees take a lot of work to grow and to maintain so that they produce fruit, but it's worth it because figs are one of the only naturally sweet substances in Israel. So it's worth the work uh, to maintain and grow the fig tree so that it produces fruit. Now... Jesus is walking into town, it appears, with the disciples, and he comes across a fig tree. And he says, let no fruit grow on you ever again. And the fig tree withers away. Now, this is kind of an odd thing. Why would Jesus take out a random fig tree? <laughs> you know, I mean, they didn't have Arbor Day at the time. So, you know, that's part of it. But like, you know, why did he take out a random fig tree? And also it says the disciples were amazed. Why were the disciples amazed? Now, again, fig trees are the leadership of Israel. The Sadducees, as the priesthood, are the leaders of Israel. And Jesus, by destroying the fig tree, is saying, this corrupt priesthood, the Sadducees, your time is finished. This corrupt priesthood that is off the track of God's will, that is off the track of following the Torah, your time is done. And the disciples are amazed because Jesus is going to take a direct line and challenge the leadership of the Sadducees. Now, thinking back on the parable here of the vineyard, 
The parable is all about the son, the owner of the vineyard, God's vineyard, is the son. Now, we've talked about this. Um, we've talked about this already in class. If you look closely at the text in verse 13, the owner of the vineyard says, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son or my son in whom I love. You remember, for those of you who are at the class, what story or verse uh, my beloved son points us back to in the Old Testament. Pop quiz, sorry. No grade, so. Yes, do you remember who, yeah, do you remember what, uh, where in the scripture, the original story that's used? It's at the baptism, yes. Genesis chapter 22. God says to Abraham, take your only son whom you love. Yeah, yeah, I knew you had it. I was just trying to draw it out of you. Yeah. Genesis 22. Take your only son whom you love and sacrifice him. God says that to Abraham about sacrificing Isaac. Jesus, in the way he tells this story, using this verbiage, is alluding to himself as the Son of God that will be sacrificed. Okay, so the, so the tenants of the vineyard, uh, he is directly referring to them as the Sadducees. And these are horrible tenants, horrible people taking care of the vineyard. And the son of the owner poses a threat to the tenants. So they decide that they should kill him. Now, he refers back to Psalm 118, which says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The original understanding of this particular verse in Psalm 118 was that David was the stone the builders rejected. Now, that comes from... If you remember the story, Samuel the prophet goes to Jesse, directed by God, uh, that one of Jesse's sons will become the king of Israel. And, you know, he starts with the oldest and what we would think is the most likely candidate to be king. And he works his way down and it's the hidden son working in the fields that becomes the king and the greatest king of Israel. So David was the stone the builders rejected, but became the chief cornerstone. Jesus comes along and reinterprets the verse and turns it to himself. Jesus, the son of David, who would become the greatest king of Israel, uh, says that I am the stone the builders rejected, and I will become the chief cornerstone. Can I ask a question? Uh Uh-huh. I vaguely remember the one about the fig, you know, and him saying that's it, and they go on their way and they come back. Mm-hmm. Is, these are very provocative things that you're saying. Mm-hmm. That if I'm an apostle, I'm going, <laughs> yeah, shut up. Right. Are they aware of this, or is it just happening within his group, some of this more provocative stuff 
I mean, which is best that they don't know that this is about to make them a target for everything that Jesus is. Uh, how aware are they that, and how much of the crowd is here? I mean, obviously in the parables, but even then, some of those parables, he just told his disciples he didn't tell anybody else. Right. Was this one with the the, um, the fig? Was it just him and his apostles? That spoke when he when he destroys the fig, when he kills yeah, the fig tree, yeah, it, it appears him? that there it could be wrong. It kind of looks to me like Jesus is walking into the town with the apostles, so with the twelve, and he speaks to the fig tree, and it says they're amazed. So, I think the being in that context, they know vineyards and family farms. They understand the grapevines and olive trees represent us as Israel, and the fig tree represents the leadership. And so they're amazed because Jesus, this is a illustrative teaching in real time. And remember, quick context, Jews think in pictures, illustrations, and stories, right? So it's not abstract concepts. We talk in abstract concepts. It's not wrong. It's just different. But Jesus is, I mean, I mean, I think almost everything we've talked about today, pictures, 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 and illustrations, it's pretty visual. So it's a visual teaching. And I think the apostles get it. They may not totally understand the implications of it. But I, th I think the disciples in that moment are amazed that Jesus is going to take a direct path to the leadership the priesthood. Does that make make some well, no, sense? I almost feel like for the first time I understand why maybe being dim-witted might not have been a bad idea. Yeah. And I mean, you know, people doubt <laughs> the apostles for just like, duh, I've had 2,000 years. What's so hard about this? But to grasp, you don't want the Sadducees mad at you. It's no, bad no. It's enough that the Romans are tying up. <clears throat> but Herod and the Sadducees and then the Pharisees, and they're working together. And, yeah, it's just maybe best that I don't understand how dangerous this could be for but then, Yeah. Is that not why um, in the early and middle part of Jesus' ministry, he attracted the crowds? He had tapped into a mm -hmm. uh, popular theme of these guys are corrupt, throw them out. Yeah. Um, and it strikes me as, as direct as, as you, you say, which I agree with, Jesus was about, you know, who's corrupt and um, where issues were. He doesn't quite go to the place of organizing a countervailing power move to take them out. Mm -hmm. Jesus goes much deeper than that. He, he wasn't about um, a physical grab for power or revolution. Right. Overthrow, per se. He goes, he kind of cuts through all that. Um, and it's misinterpreted, and the people abandon. Right. And I think there's something to Jesus speaks to the fig tree and it withers. Jesus' words have power to change things that have been in place for years, <clears throat> systems, right? So he speaks to the fig tree, it changes things. And in this parable, he's speaking a parable. Again, it's a made-up story. This didn't really happen. And the parable is shaking the grounds of the chief priests, right? Because they're concerned. Because they, it says, they know he spoke this parable against them, the chief priests. Now, 
something I've heard that some people uh, interpret this parable to mean Jesus is doing away with Israel because Israel has failed. But look closely at the imagery. He does not condemn the grapevines or the olive trees. He's not condemning Israel. He's only condemning the corrupt leadership, the corrupt priesthood. Okay? So in no way is he doing away with the Jewish movement. Yes? This is very consistent with uh, the narrative, the overall, even with the prophets. Who do the prophets talk to? They talk to the leadership. Yep. Even when uh, God decided he was going to go with what the people said, he told them what the leader was going to do to them, how the leader was going to lead them astray. And when Jesus came, he was talking about how these people have been led astray by the leadership. Mm-hmm. It's not the people, but the people leading the people is who he's trying to direct and change. Because if they change, then the people can change. Yeah, right, right. Now, he uh, so in the parable, the son is thrown out of the vineyard and killed. And Jesus, when he is crucified, is taken out of the city uh, to be killed. And then verse 18, which might be a perplexing verse. It says, whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Seems a little fuzzy. Let me share another rabbinic parable that might help this one make some sense. It's really an illustration. It, the, parables, or the illustration says, if you take a pot and drop it on a stone, the, the pot will shatter. Woe to the pot. But if you set the pot on the ground and drop a stone on the pot, the pot will shatter. Woe to the pot. Either way, woe to the pot. And the rabbis use this illustration to say, any nation, whatever you do to us, if you attack us, we will still endure as a people, as Israel. We will prevail. We will go on. And Jesus is saying, you can kill me. You can kill me and I'm still the chief cornerstone. I will prevail. You with, does that make some sense right there? So the son of the owner of the vineyard uh, will still prevail. Now, the likely site of the crucifixion was near an abandoned quarry. Okay? So, again, thinking in pictures, pictures and illustrations... Jesus, the master builder and craftsman of stone, was rejected by men and was crucified and killed near the stone the builders had rejected. Jesus was abandoned by men and and died near a quarry that was abandoned by men. Yes? I just saw on Facebook, which I'm not advocating Facebook, but a former pastor of mine just put, it, it was just published in National Geographic, four days ago, a visual picture, because I'm a visual, of this quarry site where they think his burial site was. That was just in National Geographic like four days ago. Mm-hmm. Brand new information. Yeah. That it was a quarry. Yeah. I've never heard that. Yeah, pretty amazing. Some people think that Stephen the Martyr was uh, stoned at this quarry as well. Where they found all those loose rocks. Yeah. Okay, let's continue on with with this picture here of the quarry. So, the verses we read. Listen to me, you who follow, 
follow after righteousness and who seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the hole of the pit from which you were dug. This is where, again, it makes sense to look very closely at the specific words of the scripture because every word of God has the power to transform individuals and communities and whole nations. Mark chapter 15, talking about Joseph of Arimathea, it says, Joseph, he brought, he bought fine linen, took him down and wrapped him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. So we are taken from the same quarry as Abraham and Sarah. And we are also through baptism and discipleship taken from the same quarry, taken from the same rock as Jesus himself. Continuing on with the picture, Peter says, come to Jesus, come to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Now, what becomes true of Israel becomes true in Jesus and is fulfilled in Jesus and becomes true of us. Okay, now let's look at a few verses that uh, I think Peter is alluding to. There could be many more in here, by the way, but I'm going to point out a few that I think Peter is pointing us to to help us understand this. Isaiah 53, in talking about the Messiah, it says that he is rejected by men. Again, Israel. All throughout history is rejected by men. And sadly, this is not ancient history. This is pretty recent history that Israel is rejected by men. Also, sadly, it's on the resume of Christians that we have also rejected Israel historically, uh, which is uh, not at all what Jesus intended. In Exodus 19 at Mount Sinai, which was the wedding ceremony of God becoming married to Israel, he says to them, you will be a special treasure to me, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Back to Psalm 118, the stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. We know how that finishes and I will rejoice and be glad in it. Now, I'll throw in a quick thing here. It's okay to, obviously it's totally okay to say that just in the morning, in the day, today or any day. This is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. But the original place it's used, Psalm 118, is about the day of the resurrection. The day the rejected stone becomes the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. This resurrection day, this is the day that the Lord has made. So I will rejoice and be glad in it. The, uh, the rabbis have 
um, a practice of saying 100 blessings a day or saying thanks 100 times a day. One of the things they say in the morning is, or when they wake up, Lord, I bless you for returning my soul to me with compassion today. Essentially saying, Lord, I thank you for the resurrection today, this morning, in this moment. This is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Psalm 118. And then lastly, Isaiah 42 about the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, talking about my elected one. I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles, to us, the Gentiles. Now, to bring it back to uh, us today, if you remember the, the disciples as they're walking into town, into Jerusalem, during the last week of Jesus' life, they say, teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. They're amazed at how big the temple is, how magnificent the temple was at the time. And you could look at the temple and say, that's where God is. That's where God dwells, okay? The temple where God dwelled, Herod was the builder. Herod was the master builder, the craftsman of stone. Paul says to the Corinthians, you are God's building. And he even calls himself, I am the master builder who helped build you. Let each one of you take heed, pay careful attention to how you build because you, we, in this room, we are the temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwells in us. We are the new temple raised by Jesus in the resurrection. The priesthood and the Sadducees, the corrupt, the self-serving uh, people who tried to block out the Gentiles and the outsiders and the vulnerable and use their position for power and influence, Peter says, you are a chosen generation, generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we are this new and resurrected temple, and we are this priesthood that Jesus instituted when he took out the Sadducees and put himself in as priest. Now, a scriptural indication that Jesus put himself in as the true high priest, if you remember at the end of the Gospels, it says he stood up and raised his hands and blessed. And that's what the priest was supposed to do. And that's what Jesus did, the Gospel writers indicate, uh, after the resurrection. Now, what is fascinating to me, and I found this out this summer when I got to go to Israel, the oldest text of the Bible that we have now is the priestly blessing of Numbers chapter 6. This is the oldest text of the Bible that we have. I mean, we sing this text so well, you know, in our church. And so um, what I would like to do is uh, let's stand and do the priestly blessing together. Um, 
And after that, we may have a couple minutes to discuss um, before we head out. So let's stand and do this blessing together and bless, uh, bless our church, our community, and our world. Um, and then we can, we can sit down and uh, discuss and have a few questions. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Um, all right, you can be seated, and I would love to hear any thoughts or questions or um, what's, what this makes you think about or how it makes you feel. Was the fig tree bearing, bearing fruit or not bearing fruit when Jesus cursed it? I think it was, I think he just saw leaves and not fruit, right. if I remember right. Yeah, I thought, I thought I remember. So it looks like no fruit, just leaves in that scene. Because that, that makes me think about the other scene where <coughs> the fig tree and the disciples, I think, are with Jesus and he says, get, or I, was, I can't remember exactly how it goes, he says, get rid of that fig tree and then the owner of the, of the fig tree says, give, him an, give it another year. Mm-hmm. Let's put manure and, and do all this kind of thing and see if it produces. That's right. Yeah, he tells that parable, and it seems to I, seems to be similar theme. Let's give the leadership. I think it's three years in that parable. Let's give it three years. I don't have to look again closely, but I think it it's a similar theme. Let's give we'll give the leadership a little more time. No. Stephen, do you differentiate <clears throat> between Israel? It seems to me Israel means something different post-1947 than it did prior to 1947. So prior to 1947, Israel was the group, the tribe, the religious sect, the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob, obviously, whose name has changed to Israel. <clears throat> uh, post-1947, Israel has become a political state. Um, and in my mind, those things are different, but I know that's not true for everybody. What do you? What I think it's. I think it's different. I don't. I don't know enough to have many opinions on if Israel should have the land as a nation or whatever versus the Palestinians. But, but I yes, I do think it's the, the the religious devoted to the to the scriptures, Israel. I don't know. What was 1947? I'm sorry. Uh, sorry, that, that was uh, after, after World War II, mm-hmm. um, the Jewish people were given the land that was used to be called Palestine, which is where the Palestinians were, and um, we stood up a country called Israel. Which we have today. That's what they fight so much. Yeah. And basically what happened, you had people living there, and we came in, took that land, and said, okay, now this is going to be theirs. And they're like, hold up, what? <laughs> I just think that that top, that conversation is related to um, what you presented today in that I do think I mean you mentioned how Christians are some of the people that have rejected um, Israel I, I think that's true sadly but I think sometimes and it, it's difficult even in my mind we conflate the, the Jewish people with the state of Israel mm-hmm. and Christians 
think that we're called to support the state of Israel, which I think Christians can support any any state and you know cooperate <coughs> together. But I don't know that there's a special call to support the state of Israel. Right. But I do think that we need to recognize that we are grafted onto the vine of the Jewish people. Right. As part of our faith heritage. Yeah. Good point. Mm -hmm. I have a question about the temple. And I, I don't know about this. I've never been to Israel. But um, I always think about the temple was built by Solomon. Is is that a temple further back? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah, the first temple. This was the second temple. Is that right? The Herod, the one that Herod built, which was even way bigger than Solomon's temple. The second temple uh, is the one that Jesus was in. Yeah. Getting back to what Eric said a minute ago, uh, A.J. Levine, who many of us know and, and love, uh, thinks there should be a separate Palestinian state. He's mm. a Jewish professor of New Testament at uh, Vanderbilt. Okay. We had a class a couple of semesters ago that focused on that subject, and it was it was amazing. Hmm. Um, yeah. Talked about that Palestinian-Israeli conflict, and it, it, it really shed light on me because I was a little bit ignorant on the subject, but yeah. it, was, it was really a great class. I'll admit that I'm pretty ignorant on the more modern aspects. I, I love to learn the more ancient Jewish aspects, what the rabbis said, because Jesus fits the rabbinic model. Jesus taking on disciples, telling stories and illustrations all the time, and using what's around him to teach is a very Jewish rabbinic uh, thing to do. Yeah, and it sometimes appears that, especially when he went home, is that when he when he got most of his uh, pushback, because you got to think when he was at home, those people that grew up with him in Sunday school, quote unquote, they knew what he was taught. So the other question has to come in: Where did you get that from? Right. We weren't taught this. How do you? So now I can see their opposition to him in that respect, because like you said, it's coming from a rabbinic type aspect. People will be looking at him and knew him talking about. We didn't learn this in high school. Where did you get that from? Yeah. You know, so that makes a lot of sense to me now. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, um, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate the thoughts and comments, and uh, go be a royal priesthood. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Yeah.